Psalm 16 is um, one of six. <coughs> excuse me, one of six psalms that use <coughs> the title "Mictum of David," and uh, this word "mictum" is uh, usually understood to mean uh, golden or gem. Um, it's used also to title Psalm 56 through Psalm 60. And um, these are, uh, in fact, Psalm 16 in particular is often referred to <clears throat> as David's jewel uh, or the notable psalm. Uh, an 1800s commentator by the name of Dr. Alexander uh, gave the idea that it portrayed a depth of doctrinal truth that parallels uh, uh, the revealing of a deep secret or mystery. It's got something in it that is very, very profound in the fact that uh, some people when they read this psalm will say, okay, there's, uh, there's a literal application referring to David himself, and then there's a messianic application referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, several commentators uh, have held to that view, although I would tend to uh, say that there is sufficient evidence in Scripture that it was not intended at all for David's application, but more so for the Lord Jesus Christ to reveal him in Psalm 16. And I think there's some reason for that. We're going to take a minute to look at it very quickly. Before we do, let's go ahead and read the psalm. And uh, then I'm going to show you why I believe that this psalm is not... Uh, pertaining both to David and to Christ, but specifically to Christ himself. And uh, we'll take a look at that. If you disagree with me, that's fine, but I'm going to try to show you some scriptures to why I believe that and, uh, and hold to that. But let's start reading uh, in the beginning here. Preserve me, O God, <clears throat> for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee but to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent uh, in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance, and of my cup thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel, my reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. Thou, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt spew, uh, show me the path of life, in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures uh, forevermore. Uh, I want to have you hold your place here for a minute. There are two passages I want to take you to. One of them is written uh, or penned by the Apostle Peter. The other one is written by and penned by the Apostle Paul, both of them under inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, pertaining to this psalm in particular. And so we're going to turn to the book of Acts. Go to the uh, book of Acts. Hold your place there in Psalm 16 for a minute. But I do want to try to lay a foundation and, and try to give some context. So uh, our, my, my goal as a pastor, and, and I think the goal of every Christian, ought to be as we come to the Bible to 
rightly divided, to, to seek for the Holy Spirit to help us understand Scripture, uh, that we interpret it right, that we understand it right. Uh, I've made this comment numerous times here from the pulpit. My desire as a pastor is not to be uh, right all the time uh, for the sake of saying I'm right all the time on this. My desire as a pastor is to teach you what the Bible is trying to say, what God's truth is, to the best of my understanding. And that's why often I tell folks, if there's ever an opportunity where you feel like I've missed the mark, uh, my door is open, and, and people that are here will vouch for that. Uh, if you need to come and say, Pastor, I think you missed that verse, come tell me. Because it's not about trying to just be right all the time. It's I want to be right according to Scripture. I want to make sure, because you don't need to hear my opinion on something. You need to hear what God's Word is on it. And the, the sad thing is, as much as pastors try and study and learn uh, Scripture to try to be right on it, we're fallible. We're sinners by nature, and our understanding sometimes is tainted uh, by that sin nature. And, uh, and so sometimes we do make a mistake. Sometimes we miss something in Scripture. And I don't ever want our people to feel like uh, they can't ever come and say, Pastor, um, maybe that's wrong. Let's take a look at that and see if we can't find it a little clearer in Scripture and, and make sure we come to an understanding on it. And, and I'm, you're more than welcome to do that. And, and never will anybody uh, be upset. <laughs> there are enough people here, I think, that will vouch for this. I don't get upset when people do that because my desire is I want to be right according to the Bible. I, I want to make sure we are, we are solid on it. Um, and so that ever happens. But, so we try to take everything within context. We take the Bible literally, and when it's literal, we make sure that the context is right, the setting is right. But there are some times when Scripture itself is very definitive about a passage. And you don't have to sit there and scratch your head and wonder about some things. And so I think this is one of those cases where uh, I think Scripture itself bears witness to the application of this particular psalm. And so let's take a look in Acts chapter 2, if you will. Acts chapter number 2. <clears throat> and um, we're going to look at two different passages here. And verse number 25. Acts chapter 2, verse number 25. Peter is speaking here, and, and again, he's writing as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So these words are not Peter's thoughts. These are the words that God gives to Peter for us to have. For David speaketh concerning... Not himself, but him. Notice that. David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou, for thou hast, thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of that patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, beginning a prophet, or being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ, to sit on his throne, he seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. So here 
Peter is saying David was not speaking of himself in this psalm. He was speaking of the Christ. Uh, and so, you know, some people say, well, can we draw a parallel to David's life in the psalm? You probably can. But I believe that this psalm is really specifically meant to be Christ alone. Uh, I was reading one commentator as I was studying some notes for this, and he used the illustration of um, the Mount of Transfiguration, if you'll remember the story, and how Moses and Elijah appeared with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the disciples, thinking they were doing something good, Peter especially, said, let's build here three tabernacles. And what happened? you remember what happened? Immediately, Moses and Elijah disappeared because they weren't the point. The point was the Lord Jesus Christ. And while, yes, you could probably pull some parallels of David, that's not the point of the psalm. The psalm is the Lord Jesus and Him alone. Now, again, Peter speaks of this. Now let's see what Paul says about it. Turn to Acts chapter 13. Paul's going to speak of the same, the same psalm <coughs> and the same writing. Acts chapter 13 and verse number 35. Acts chapter 13, verse number 35. Wherefore, he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer, suffer thine holy one to see corruption. So we know we're speaking of the 16th psalm. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. That ought to tell you right there. It was not speaking of David then. But he whom God raised again, who is that? That's the Lord Jesus, isn't it? Saw no corruption. Be it known unto you, therefore, many brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. So two different places, this particular psalm is referred to specifically, saying it is not speaking about David. And the reason was the Jews during the time of Peter and Paul believed that this psalm referred to David. They did not accept it as a messianic psalm. And Peter and Paul were both trying to set the record straight by inspiration of the, of the Holy Spirit. And so keep in mind as we read this on, and, and again, if you say, well, I want, I want to try to draw some parallels with David, you're probably going to find some. Uh, there's no doubt that there are some times that David is pictured as a type of Christ. But it is not the intent of this psalm to be picturing David. The intent of this psalm is to be picturing Christ. And so if you'll keep that in mind as we study through these verses, it will help us to understand maybe some truths that were hidden. Some things that we would not have recognized if we just associated it with David and not Christ. And such is, I think, the gist of the title of the psalm. That there are some doctrinal truths to be found in here that without careful examination you could gloss right over and miss. And I want us to take some time on this. In fact, we'll probably be two Sundays, maybe even three Sundays on this psalm, uh, just because of the care that we want to take in uh, developing some of these things. There's a very difficult uh, time in dividing this psalm out, but there, I'm going to give you four uh, simple divisions that will it'll help us kind of format how this is laid out. The, the first division is verse number one, and this is um, the Lord's Prayer of Faith. Uh, 
This is, this is a prayer. If you want to, again, if we're keeping in mind that this is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, then this would be Christ's prayer, if you will. All right? Verses 2 to 5 would be Christ's faith in God alone. His faith in God alone, in His Father. Verses 6 and 7 would be the contentment of that faith in the present. The contentment of that faith in the present. And then verses 8 through 11, the joyous confidence of that faith for the future. The joyous confidence of that faith for the future. Now, I want to I want to just make sure that, and, and I know we're teaching Sunday morning Sunday school here. Uh, but when we when we speak of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are speaking about God, who is all God, part of the Godhead, part of the Trinity, God the Son. He is a hundred percent God, but when He comes to Earth, He also becomes a hundred percent man. He's the only one that was all God and all man at the same time. Some people said, well, when he became man, he ceased being God for that period of time. That is not a doctrinal uh, truth. He never ceased being God. He did take upon him the form of a servant. He humbled himself. He laid aside some glory, but he never ceased being God. He is God the Son, even during his time here on earth. But he was also 100% man. As a man, the Bible says he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He experienced, in fact, the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, because he also serves as our high priest, that we have not a high priest who is not touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He, he knows the things that we know. He feels the things that we, he has felt the things that we have felt. And I would go so far as to say this. He has felt them even more so than we have. He has felt because he was all God and absolute holy and felt the burden of temptation. He probably felt that temptation far stronger than you and I do. He... he, he he experienced these things, I think, to maybe even a greater extent than you and I could even imagine. One of, the, one of the comments that was made as I was reading through some notes that other people had written on this psalm, and I, I thought I'd never really thought of this before, we think oftentimes of the fact that Christ's suffering uh, for redemption of man was the darkest stain on humanity. It was the deepest, darkest sorrow, the deepest, darkest pain that ever could be. Uh, because he was taking upon him the sin of the whole world at that moment. But have you ever thought of this, that just as much as he felt the weight and the darkness and the burden and the sorrow and the pain of sin, because he also was without sin and served his father without any blemish, without any will of his own, also experienced greater joy in serving the father than you and I could ever experience serving the father. That he experienced the whole gambit of emotion that humans could ever experience and then some. 
it makes it amazing when we start looking into this psalm and see the faith, the unwavering steadfastness to the will of his Father in light of all of this. Let's look in verse number 1. He cries out, and he, he, his prayer is this, Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. It's interesting that during the time that the Lord Jesus was in his earthly ministry, having put himself in the form of a servant and took upon him the likeness of man, was found in the fashion of man, and was allowing himself to feel the effects of temptation as a man. He put himself in trust to the Father. Uh, we're going to look at a couple of these things. First of all, let's look in Job chapter 7. And we're going to see how Christ did this. Job chapter 7. <clears throat> and verse number 20. Job is speaking here and he says, I have sinned. And so he's not, this isn't Christ, but this is Job. He says, I have sinned. Uh, what shall I do unto thee? O thou, notice this phrase, preserver of men. Job 7, am I in the right verse? Job 7, verse 20. Everybody got that? I'm sorry. Did I give you the wrong verse? Job 7, verse 20. He says, I have sinned. What shall I do unto thee? O thou preserver of men. Why hast thou set me as a mark against thee, so that I am a burden to myself? And he refers to God here as the preserver of men. It's, it's one of his roles, one of the titles that he has. And, and Job speaks of it here. But then I want you to notice in Isaiah chapter number 49 where uh, there's a little more specific uh, statement of the fact that Christ uh, was preserved by the Father. And uh, we'll go to Isaiah chapter 49. And uh, let's look in verse number 7. Isaiah chapter 49, verse number 7. Thus saith the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital E. So this is referring to God the Father, um, uh, Elohim, I mean, uh, God Almighty. He's, this is the, the God the Father uh, title that's given in Scripture. Uh, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One. So we're speaking here, um, and it says, To him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Thus saith the Lord, In an acceptable time have I heard thee. In a day of salvation have I helped thee. I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. He's speaking here of the Lord Jesus Christ being the covenant of the people. And he makes the statement in verse number 8, I will preserve thee. God the Father is speaking about God the Son. And he makes the statement, I will preserve thee. 
and give thee for a covenant of the people. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ certainly is the covenant of his people. And so, again, we see that uh, during this psalm, David is referring to the fact that the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry, as a way of example perhaps, willingly depended upon his Father to preserve him during his earthly ministry. Now, he's all God, and there's the discussion. A lot of people have said, well, was Jesus even capable of sinning? Well, he's God. He's all God. He's not laid aside that godness. So, no, he was not capable of sinning. Uh, he would have ceased to be God. But during that human time, while he's here on earth, he did expect for his Father to give preservation to him so that he could fulfill the ministry that he had given him to do while he was here on this earth. Now, back to Psalm 16, he was completely, uh, he completely fulfilled this, this idea of being preserved. And because of the fact that he was preserved in his earthly life and his earthly ministry without fault, without blemish, without sin, uh, because he was sustained by his father, he was preserved by his father in this time period, he is now able to be the one that does the preserving. He's the one that um, now is able to do uh, a work of redemption. Had he sinned, had he been imperfect, had he not been able to fulfill all of the law, he would not have been able to be the Redeemer of mankind. And uh, so this is his prayer in Psalm 16. And verse uh, 2, he says, O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord. My goodness extendeth not to thee. Uh, in the heart of hearts, in in, in Christ's ministry, what was his number one desire while he was here? Remember when the disciples, uh, or when his mom and dad came seeking him in the temple when he was 12 years old? They were scolding him. He said, I must be about my father's business. When he, when he was hungering and the disciples... Uh, came to them and knew that he was hungering. And he said, I have meat to eat that you know not of. And he said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, if there be any other way, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. The whole purpose, the whole desire of the Lord Jesus Christ was to yield himself to the will of the Father. And so he says in verse 2, O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee. And in the heart of the Lord Jesus, the most important thing was that he submit himself to the will of his Father. Uh, again, I think there's a great exampleship shown here. It ought to be the desire of every Christian to be so submitted to the will of the Father that we pray as the Lord Jesus, not as my will, not as I will, but as thou will. And this is more than, and, and here's the difference between the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ on the matter and the heart of you and I often on the matter, is while we may have a, a heart and, a, and an intellect and even uh, speak with lip service, 
that that is our desire. We don't fulfill it the way the Lord Jesus Christ did, do we? There are times that our will takes precedent. We don't follow the will of the Father the way that we should. But he makes this statement. He says, my goodness is not, uh, my goodness extendeth not to thee. That's a peculiar statement. But notice what he goes on to say in verse 3, but to the saints that are on the earth and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. This, this life that the Lord Jesus Christ lived, this life that he entrusted to the Lord and sought for preservation, life of sinless perfection <coughs> that the Lord Jesus Christ lived was not for the Lord. I, I, was, I, I read this, and I wrote it down because I wanted you to hear it, and I think it's a wonderful truth. <clears throat> the work of our Lord Jesus Christ was not needful on account of any necessity in the divine being. Jehovah would have been inconceivably glorious had the human race perished and had no atonement even been offered. Think about that for a moment. God would not have diminished himself as God had he never provided a way of redemption and just destroyed man for their sin. He would have still been God. He would have still been just as glorious. He would have still been just as right. Some people say, well, but what about his love and his long-suffering, these attributes that that he is? Uh, I would submit this, that just because you don't always act on your character or your attribute of who you are does not necessarily mean that you're not that. Um, I'll give you a, a, an illustration. It's, it's going to be a weak one in comparison to the Lord, but let's say, that, let's say that your character, part of who you are, is you are a very generous person. And when somebody has a need... Many times you step up and you meet that need because part of who you are is you're generous. But if something happens where a need comes up and I don't meet that need that time, does that mean that I'm not generous? It just means I did not choose to act on my generosity at that time. And so I'm going to say this, that God's a just God. He would have been just as much God. He would have been just as wonderful. He would have been just as glorious if he had never even offered redemption to man. And this is what I believe the psalmist is getting to here. He's saying this, this, this righteousness that the Lord Jesus Christ went through, this preservation he's praying to God to help him with, and uh, not to help him with, but to preserve him with while he's here on this earth, is not for the Lord. It's not for him. It's for those that are going to taste of the fruit of what it produces. Uh, And so he goes on to say this. He says, although the life work and the death agony of the Son did reflect unparalleled luster upon every attribute of God, yet the most blessed and infinitely happy God stood in no need of the obedience and death of His Son. It was for our sakes that the work of redemption was undertaken, and not because of any lack or want on the part of the Most High. God did not offer redemption because He needed to. 
the sooner we can get this concept in mind, I think the sooner we'll be able to really fully understand the implication of our redemption. There was no need in God. There was no lacking. There was no something missing in Him. That He felt like, I have to do this. But He did it simply because it was for our good. As we get to the second verse here, let's look at that again with that kind of that kind of thought in mind. He says this, O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee. Speaking to, to the Father, he said, I'm not doing it for your sake, Father, but to the saints that are in the earth and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Now, here's an interesting thing in verse 3. It was for us that he came. We're the ones that get to partake in the work that the Lord Jesus Christ did. It is by His goodness that we are made what we are in Him. And I've I've talked with some of you in the last year or so because there is a sense that we are wretched, that we do not deserve redemption, that when we think of who God is and who we are, why did He even bother but I want you to notice something that's stated here in verse 3. Notice he says this, And to the excellent in whom is all my delight. When we are made in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ because of what He has done, the Lord Jesus considers us precious to Him. He considers us of a level of excellence and of high value and of nobility. And this idea, he uses the word excellent here, and he says, in whom is all my delight. So yes, we are worthless as sinners, but we are excellent when we are redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have value. We are the one that he takes delight in. When the work of redemption is completed in us. So this goodness that the Lord Jesus goes through in order to become the Redeemer of man was not not for the Lord's sake. It wasn't for God's sake. It was for ours. We're the ones that benefit. And as we benefit, it allows Him to delight in us. It causes Him to think, this is excellent. He looks down at Greg and he doesn't see a worthless sinner anymore. He sees someone of excellence, someone of value. Not because of anything I've done, but because of what the Lord Jesus did for me. How about you? But boy, that sure makes me feel a whole lot better, doesn't it? That God thinks of me as precious. God thinks of you as precious. It's His delight. In fact, it says, in whom is all my delight. Oh, my delight. We get saved. God delights in us. Verse number 4. He now changes and he starts talking about those who would practice idolatry. And he says, Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. I'm going to probably stop there for a minute, but I do want to leave you, or stop there for the week, and we'll pick up there next week. But I do want to make this statement as we leave, and something for you to ponder as we leave here today. 
The Bible says their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. One of the darkest sins, and I would, I would go so far as to say this, in God's sight, I believe the darkest sin is the sin of idolatry. Somebody wrote it this way, the same heart that opens to those that seek Him is also fast closed against those in their rebellion against God. God hates all wickedness. There's no doubt about it. I don't know that there's any darker wickedness than the wickedness of idolatry. And we're going to see how in the next few verses, God is so, Jesus Christ is so filled with the fullness of the Father that there is never even a desire for Him to seek any other God other than His Father. Through temptation, the prince of this world tempted Him, said, fall down and worship Me. Jesus didn't even tempted. Why? Because the fullness of the Father was so great. There was no room for any other God. There was no room for any other worship. And by the way, that ought to be the same in our lives. When we say this is David's crown jewel of Psalms, if this is the the jewel of David. Can I tell you, there's probably no greater example psalm given to us that we can endeavor to aspire to than probably this psalm. That we would have the same kind of love and prayer and dedication, steadfastness to the Father's will that the Lord Jesus shows here in this particular passage. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed there. And... Um, We'll pick up here in verse number 4 next week. And we'll probably at least one more week, maybe maybe two weeks left in this one. Um, but great psalm, great psalm. And uh, don't want us to miss some of the truth that's in there. Let's go.